Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Thanks to Michael Lewis, we all know the term Moneyball. Very few people actually apply those concepts, though. Today's guest, Karen Ulrich Stacy, has actually used the Moneyball concept to change the demographics of law firms and the face of law firm leadership. Informed by her education as a journalist and her work with top law firms on their talent strategies, Karen co-founded Lawyer Metrics, a startup company that pioneered a data-driven approach to lawyer recruitment and development. From there, Karen created Diversity Lab to focus exclusively on closing the gender gap and increasing diversity and inclusion in the legal field. The success of Diversity Lab's marquee program, the Mansfield Certification, is a testament to how an ongoing commitment to change and data-driven measurement of outcomes can solve the toughest problems facing our profession. Listen in to today's conversation to learn how Karen's journey in law started at birth, and I mean that literally the three things that contribute to law firm associate satisfaction, and surprisingly, why money isn't one of them, and the big audacious goal Karen has set for on-ramp fellowship to more than double the number of women brought back to full-time law firm work. She's doing some wonderful things, and I hope you're as inspired by them as was I. Hi, Karen. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for inviting me to speak with you. Well, thanks for joining us. It's great to have you on the show. You've been doing such fabulous things in the industry. It's great to catch up and hear more about them. So thanks for making the time. Absolutely. So your current venture is Diversity Lab that has so many things going on that we could take hours and cover all the various cool things that you're doing. But let's start by talking a little bit about the path that led you to this current venture. You're not a lawyer, right? And I think in some circles that's called a non-lawyer, but I don't use that term. (laughs) I only use allied professionals to steal Bill Henderson's turn. Well, Stephen. (laughs) What is it that triggered your interest in the profession? And you've made such a contribution to the profession and its demographics. Sort of talk to me a little bit about the path that led you here, because I think it's probably not a typical one. I'm happy to. Is it going to scare you and your listeners when I tell you it has to start at birth? <laughs> uh, not not at all. I think I know where this story is going. So I'm, I think our listeners will be fascinated by it. So I, I wasn't actually kidding. It did start at birth. This is my 30th year in law. And prior to that, I had the chance, obviously, to have schooling and different things. But well before all of that happened, I was born in uh, Sugarland, Texas. And I was put into foster care by my birth mother, and she was giving me up for adoption. But unfortunately, right at the time that I was born, I got caught in the open, closed adoption law change. And I had actually been adopted by these really great people and had been placed in their home. This is now my parents. But I got pulled and put back in what they called at the time was a faith home, foster care. But I think faith home sounded better. And I was caught in limbo. I didn't have the signature of my biological dad in terms of the adoption. And because of the closed open adoption laws, there were some loopholes uh, that were keeping me from being able to be placed in my adopted parents' home. My parents didn't have two really important privileges at the time. One is they didn't know any lawyers, which is a privilege. And they didn't have the money to pay for lawyers. Uh, My dad was a welder in the oil and gas industry, and my mom actually scheduled barges, oil and gas barges, 
And so it didn't afford them the opportunity to be able to have the type of money needed to pay for a lawyer to help figure out all of this stuff. And some very kind soul suggested that he had a cousin who he knew practiced law. He didn't know what type of law. He didn't know where, but he would be glad to track him down and see if this was something he could help with. So it turns out it was a lawyer at Baker Botts in Houston, Texas. Mm. And this particular lawyer did not practice family law in any way, shape or form. But he agreed to help my parents on a pro bono basis. And so as a result of his help, he's since passed away. But as a result of his help, I was only in foster care for months versus years, like many of the other children who were still dealing with some of those legal issues. And so even though I got pulled from my parents' home, I was back in a couple of months in their home. And so uh, my parents stayed in touch with him and his wife until his passing because they were so thankful for that level of help, because I think, but for that, I'm not quite sure where I'd be these days. Right. That's an amazing story. And there's so much to it in terms of the access to justice gap that's going on in the country now. I, I know that's off topic for us. And I won't go there, but it's certainly an amazing indication of the power of being a lawyer and the impact you can have on people's lives. Well, and I don't think it is off topic from the equal justice situation, because Part of the reason that Diversity Lab exists is because we're trying to have the legal profession reflect society because we know when that happens, there's a lot of other really important ripple effects. So if our profession is diverse, they're much more likely to help people who came from their same backgrounds, privileged or not. And if our profession is diverse, knowing that we populate, and not we, I guess, again, I'm not a lawyer, but our profession populates a good portion of Congress. It's populating POTUS and FLOTUS. And if you look, for instance, provost, college provost, lawyers are quickly becoming the largest population of provosts. Really? Yeah. And if you look at CEOs of companies, Brad Smith, Microsoft, if you look at journalists, lawyers populate a huge portion of what runs the world. And so if we don't create a legal profession that's diverse, we're not really helping the journalists and the provosts and Congress and the president make sure that there's diversity in those roles that reflect society in the same way. And the same is a connection to equal justice. And so you chose to play an important role in the legal profession, but not as a lawyer. What caused you to make that choice? Well, I'm laughing and I know your listeners can't see me because we're not on video, but I'm laughing because someone told me once that I shouldn't become a lawyer because I'm too personable. (laughs) (laughs) Which is totally Uh, not fair. I know a ton of really charismatic and social lawyers. Um, Okay, I'm thinking, I got to think about that one though, Karen. (laughs) Well, you're one of them. Look, see? (laughs) So, um... Yeah, I didn't choose the path of law for a number of reasons. One, I really enjoyed writing as a kid. So I went to journalism school and I did so because I thought that would open the most doors. I knew that writing was a good basis for anything and everything that I would want to do. And when I went to college, I did go to University of Houston, where I was born and raised, because I didn't have the funds to go out of state. And I had to pay for college, but for the scholarships that I had. And so it made most sense to stay in Houston. And if I was going to write, I was in a major metropolitan area and I could do so with any number of papers. But I also knew that it would give me a good base for whatever was next. It's kind of interesting how I ended up in law. So um, I was in the communication school. And one of the really wonderful things about the University of Houston is that their journalism school is a co-op. 
So half of it is curriculum in the classroom, but half of it is you get a job and you do that job because we all know that that's the best way to learn. So that's fabulous. I did a number of interesting things in college that I both got credit for and paid for. So um, at one point I was writing head pro golf profiles. <laughs> Mind you, I had never played golf in my life. <laughs> I um, got a job at an advertising agency and I was writing copy for Mercedes advertisements. And then finally, you know, one of the last openings that I applied for and got was helping the dean of University of Houston Law School, who at the time was a UCC expert. I did not know what those initials stood for until I took the job, which I now understand is a very bad decision on my part. <laughs> So I will tell you that Uniform Commercial Code is not one of the most stimulating pieces of law that we deal with. Yeah, I remember that from law school. Yes, my UCC class was at 8 a.m. and that was a really hard thing to do. Yes. And uh, the dean, uh, not only was the dean of a law school, but he taught the UCC class because he had also written all the treatises on it. So my last co-op role as a journalism student was to edit his UCC treatises. Oh, and my. to help grade and write feedback on his papers for his students. Oh. And I knew, I knew at that moment that I was not going to be a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not fair to really, there's lots of reasons not to be a lawyer, not to go to law school. The fact that UCC is boring is, <laughs> well, okay, maybe that is a good reason <laughs> I think about it. Well, what happened from that, which was really interesting, is that I got a chance to interact with the law students. And in all of my other writing jobs, I didn't really have the chance to kind of understand how the writing impacted them or get a feel for their interaction with the UCC treatises and different things. And I enjoyed it immensely. And so I ended up getting a job at the law school, working in career services on a part-time basis while I was finishing my journalism degree. And it ended up that around the same time, the woman that was head of recruiting at Walt Gottschall and Mandy's was leaving. And I had known her from U of H and she said, gosh, you know, if you like the law school side, you might even love the law firm side, because not only can you help these students, you know, at, at law school, you're helping them graduate, but at Walt Gottschall, you'd be helping them succeed in their careers. And wouldn't that be fun? So Walt Gottschall hired me. <laughs> Great firm. <laughs> first recruiting job. And that's where it started. And now we're 30 years later. That's amazing. And you, you work for a number of firms in the recruiting HR function before going and starting up with some others, lawyer metrics, right? Did I have that right? Correct. Tell us a little bit about lawyer metrics. I had the pleasure of dealing with the team back in the startup phase which I thought was a fascinating use of You and I met analytics. in 2011 when myself and the other co-founders of Lawyer Metrics were running our first rainmaking study. I remember. It was phenomenal. And it was my first real introduction to data from a behavioral data standpoint, right? I had dealt with data as it relates to when you think about it from a qualitative and a quantitative standpoint in recruiting, for instance, right? So, you know, in the 20 some odd years I was in, in recruiting, I had hired 3,700 lawyers. So I, I now believe I'm an expert in lawyers. Um, <laughs> I fired about as many as well. That's a whole different issue. But I had hired about 3,700 lawyers. And in doing so, I was running data all the time, right? Which schools were producing uh, more success from a longevity standpoint than others? How were the lawyers feeling about our recruitment process, right? Those were the qualitative type data studies that we did. 
But Lawyer Metrics was interesting because it was the first time we were really taking a money ball approach mm-hmm. to law and to talent and combining those things in a way that I think we hadn't done before. One of the things you did was you analyzed from AMLA the mid-associate data and began to look for trends. Talk to us a little bit about that because I, I find that fascinating. I did too. It was so fun. So we partnered with American Lawyer and because they had been running the mid-level satisfaction survey with associates for so long, we were lucky enough to have access to 48,000 pieces of data where associates told us every year, (laughs) third, fourth, and fifth year associates, how they felt about the law firms where they worked. And interestingly, there's about 120 questions on that survey, which if you're a data geek like me, that's a dream. And then if you have thousands and thousands of associates and multiple years, I believe we had 12 years of data, we were able to look and find the trends. What satisfies associates over time? Because as you know, people like to say, well, this generation versus this generation and this geography versus this geography or this practice group, right? Litigators are so different than transactional lawyers. And our question was, is that true? (laughs) Is what satisfies a litigator different or is what satisfies a lawyer in Idaho different than what makes a lawyer in New York happy? And so we ran the data. And interestingly, American Lawyer has a question at the end that says, what's your likelihood that you would stay at this firm for five years? So not only did we have the ability to look at what satisfied folks, we had the ability to correlate with what were the things that mattered most that would keep people at their firms for as long as they wanted, but at least five years. And it turns out that if you look at what drives associate satisfaction and longevity, it's three things. And there's one thing that ranks way above the other two. And what are those? You're going to make me ask, aren't you? Okay. (laughs) I thought we would just end the podcast, Stephen. Go on, go on, go on Diversity Labs website to find the answer. (laughs) See, you'd be a good marketer. What so are the three? The three I, see, I already know the three things. So. Yeah, I know you do. I, I, I realize you did your research and you have a great memory as well. So the first one is the work. So associates care deeply about the type of work they're doing. And when they think about the type of work they do, they think about it on two levels. Does it interest me? And does it make me better, right? Am I growing? Am I learning? Am I mastering something? And it's interesting because it actually correlates with Daniel Pink and Drive. I don't know if you've ever seen some of his behavioral science work where it talks about longevity at work and liking your workplace is about mastery, autonomy, and purpose. And so it's interesting to me because what we learned about folks liking their work, being interested in their work, and then getting a chance to master and grow correlates with the rest of these other professions that we've studied over time. The second two things that matter, and these still matter more than those hundred and other 17 things, but they matter less than work by a lot. So work trumps everything. If you like your work, you are more likely to deal with some of the nonsense. So if you're unhappy with your pay, as long as you still feel like it's reasonable and in the ballpark of what you should be paid and how you should be valued, you're probably going to be okay with it if you're a couple of thousand dollars lower than your person next door. If it's hard to balance home and work, but you really love, love, love your work, often you'll find a way to balance it or to figure it out. The other two things that matter were associate partner relations. 
So you have to enjoy and like and feel like the person that you're working with is helping you to grow in advance. So it's why we talk about mentorship and sponsorship and all of those things being so incredibly important in our field. And then the third and final, and you know, we phrased it as family friendly, but we mean that in a broad sense. We're not just talking about people with kids. We're talking about the fact that whatever's going on in your life at the time, if the firm that you're with and the partners and the other folks that you work with support what's happening with you, then you're more likely to stay at your job. So if you have a child, that's one example. If you have elder care issues, if you just think that for your well-being, it would be great for you to leave at at least seven o'clock every day to do a pickup basketball game, that's family friendly, right? That's your life and how you want to live it and whether or not everyone around you supports what you need at the time that you need it. And so those three things matter most. By the time you did this analysis, you'd been in the industry for a couple of decades <laughs> and you'd hired a bunch of lawyers, you'd fired a bunch of lawyers. Did you expect these results? Was this consistent with your learned experience or did it surprise you? <laughs> Both. <laughs> it surprised me and it fit with some of what I expected. And let me just very quickly explain. I knew the work was most important. But often I felt like, well, the training's also important and this is also important and this is also important. And at some point it becomes overwhelming, right? For a law firm and for leaders in a law firm to think that there's these 18 things that matter. And how are we gonna do every single one of these things well for each of these humans that we care so deeply about? And so I think what it did is it removed some of the noise for me and said, look, if we were gonna focus, focus on making sure our associates get good work and stuff they're interested in. And if we were going to focus, make sure that the partners are taking these associates under their wings and making sure they get a chance to do good work and that they can master this and that they feel like they've got someone in their corner. And then don't forget that they have life outside of here. So if we focused on those three things, we'd get 90% of the way there. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. But as you're talking about the interesting work, what it's triggering for me is the role of the human in the creation of value for clients versus the role of technology. And there's been an, a lot written and discussed about is technology impeding on lawyers and their happiness and what they can do. It strikes me from what you've just said, that to the extent technology can take off the routine work, the document review, the stuff we all, and free people up to do more interesting work, it's not just driving efficiency, it's driving associate satisfaction. Am I correlating those things correctly in your mind? Possibly. <laughs> oh, okay. You have, hung around, you have hung around with lawyers too much. Right? I can't just uh, say yes or no. That'd be way too easy. Um, well, the reason I say possibly is because there's a convergence of issues here, right? The answer is yes. Technology could help with a lot of those different things. And in fact, technology likely has both helped and harmed the last one I talked about, right? What's life outside yeah. of this look like? Because technology has helped us be able to work from anywhere. And we've seen that obviously up close and personal in the pandemic. But the downside is technology has allowed us to work from anywhere. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yep, absolutely. That means that uh, we potentially have less boundaries than we had previously, right? So we do have access to our phones that have our email on them now. Whereas in the middle of the night, if I needed to answer a partner, I'd have to go get my computer up and run in. 
And there'd be a question on whether or not I even had a computer, right, at my home that the firm was allowing me to utilize for work. So technology's both hurt and helped from that perspective. And I guess I think about it in the same way for clients and for taking away some of the routine work that maybe is not as fun or as interesting. The problem is, is that you also have to take in lawyer personalities. And I know you've seen the research that uh, Larry Richards has done about mm-hmm. lawyers and their risk aversion. <laughs> yes, their resilience. Yes. You know, their, their, their desire to not change. <laughs> And there's also high skepticism. So when we say this new fancy tool will make life all better for you, their first reaction is prove it. <laughs> right. Yes, it is. It's new, right? And so the prove it is R&D. The prove it is getting enough people willing to try it that they can show you that it would make life better and different. But our technology is catching up, right? So a lot of when we say prove it or test it, It's really irritating (laughs) for lawyers because it doesn't come out of the gate perfect. And some lawyers really reject it when it's not perfect out of the gate, especially if it's supposed to make their life easier, but they're frustrated by it. Yeah, yeah, boy, that's that's my lived experience for sure. (laughs) So lawyer metrics, you guys sell it and you start Diversity Lab. What caused you to start Diversity Lab? So I think, like I said, You know, Lawyer Metrics was really the first introduction to Moneyball (laughs) Mm -hmm. for me. I had read Michael Lewis's book. At the time in which we were talking about Moneyball, Lawyer Metrics, Brad Pitt was starring in Moneyball, which was incredibly helpful. (laughs) (laughs) Because when we first started Lawyer Metrics, I would ask people who's heard of Moneyball in a room of, you know, 200 people. And, you know, just the Michael Lewis fans would raise their hands having read the book. Right before we sold Lawyer Metrics, uh, I would ask, you know, anybody heard of Moneyball? And everyone's hand in the room would go (laughs) up. And what's interesting about it is that I think law has really benefited from data over the years as it relates to marketing and finance, right? Like there's very few things that we do in marketing and finance that we don't pay attention to the data, right? Even at a really simplistic level, when we all got websites, we were looking at Google Analytics and we were paying attention to who was doing what on our website. So we could learn from that and use those people's behaviors to our benefit, to better market our firms. We weren't really using data in any sophisticated way necessarily with talent not in the way that we started looking at it for Moneyball. And I'll give you two examples. One of them you worked on with us, right? One was rainmaking. For a lot of people used to say like, if you're a rainmaker in the firm, you know, like, how did that happen? (laughs) You were like this unicorn with some kind of magic wand that you had. And there were a lot of myths about what made for a good rainmaker. Some people would say, well, it's whoever your roommate in college was (laughs) or you know, you have to be very charismatic and a relationship builder, or you know what, you inherit it from the guy you work for. (laughs) Right. And our goal was to see, were there biographical or behavioral traits that led to rainmaking, right? If you were a client service partner versus a rainmaker, and it's not that easy, right? It's not binary necessarily. But if you didn't develop work, and you really liked just servicing the client, which is an incredibly important part of the profession, What did that look like that was different from a personality standpoint or a biographical standpoint than those people who were bringing in $2 million or $18 million books of business? And so we studied lawyers. We did, um, as you know, we did a number of psychometric assessments. We looked at what motivates lawyers. We looked at the traits of lawyers. 
And then we did really important, I would say, structured behavioral interviews to see how does the day in a life of a rainmaker look different in the day of a life of a client service partner or someone who, who wasn't interested in rainmaking. And it turns out that there were a lot of really good trends that if we had looked at that previously, we probably could have helped develop rainmakers in a way that was much more structured than just these myths around what creates rainmakers or not. And so what I wanted to do with Diversity Lab was take some of those same types of moneyball statistics or approaches and apply that to talent in a more broad way. And really the first thing that we did, knowing that 2 million women leave their professions every year for varying reasons, sometimes childcare, sometimes elder care, sometimes to go get an advanced degree, all kinds of reasons. But when you look at the research, almost every single one of them will tell you that if they spend five, 10 or 15 years out of their profession, and this is true of law, they have trouble getting back in. People think their skills are not up to date. People think that they don't have the same contacts that they had previously, and maybe that's true. But in law in particular, I had experienced that firsthand. In the firms that I had been with, I often would receive resumes from women who had taken a hiatus. I don't call it a break, I call it a hiatus, because if you leave to raise children, that is not a break. <laughs> no, it is not. <laughs> so um, I would get a resume probably once a week from a woman who had taken a hiatus of five or 10 or 15 years. I would go to the practice group leader and I would say, look, she looks incredible. We should interview her. But the problem was, is that her resume was put up against a bunch of people who were laterals. Those people who were still practicing, they may be at a different firm. And they didn't have a break or a gap in their resume, right? They had been practicing the last 10 years. So they seemed like better candidates from a current standpoint than these women did. But yet we were all saying, gosh, we're underrepresented from a gender standpoint. We're underrepresented from a race and ethnical and LGBT and lawyers with disabilities. And so many of these women are wanting to come back. Like, what's the problem? Why aren't we at least trying to help them come back in? Right. So, and for someone, for someone who lived it, you're losing this enormous drain of talent of these incredibly talented women lawyers. Just the loss of talent of that generation is well, just, and to not just, to, to put a brick wall up and say, sorry, <laughs> you know, you've made a choice or, or life made a choice for you or whatever happened, happened, but you're not welcome back seemed odd. And I knew I wasn't just going to be able to convince people, you know, Trust me, this woman's going to be amazing. So I decided we'd use data. And so we started the on-ramp fellowship, and this is eight years ago now. And our thought was, we'll moneyball the organization. We'll do a version of a moneyball for the women. And we'll create a match. We'll show the law firms that these women are going to bring amazing talent to their firms. And we'll do through so with data. We're going to do those psychometric assessments that we did with Rainmakers, but we're going to do it with everybody. Um, we're going to do structured behavioral interviews. And whatever we learn about what makes for success at this law firm, we're going to compare and contrast that to what we learn and then show how the data fits. The lawyers were skeptical. <laughs> of course they were. Right. But I, um, I called four law firms and said, try this with me. It's low risk. I'm asking you to hire one returning woman. I will give you data that proves that she will be successful at your firm. And all you have to do is hire her for one year. If it works, then give her a chance to interview for a longer term job. If she likes it and you think she's a good fit for your clients, 
Give her a chance to interview for a longer term job. If for some reason after a year, she doesn't like you all, <laughs> or for whatever reason, she's not performing at the level your clients need, then it's okay. At least what you've done is you've expanded her contacts, you've updated her experience, you've updated her skills, and now she has that to lean on when she goes and interviews for other jobs. So there's no risk to you to do this. So Sidley, Hogan Levels, Baker Botts, and Cooley all agreed to take one fellow. And, it's a start. Um, it is. It is. And so we posted a number of their open positions for them. We interviewed, I think, and this was eight years ago, and I don't even know if I ate breakfast this morning, so I apologize that I can't remember the exact number. But if I remember correctly, we had about two or 300 women somewhere in between that apply for what ultimately was four roles. And that showed us just beyond a shadow of a doubt what kind of talent pool that we were neglecting mm -hmm. and what kind of talent pool that we had in front of us that no one was paying attention to. So for those four firms, they were about to have access to an amazing pool of underestimated, underappreciated talent. They ended up taking nine fellows, nine returners. Congratulations. So more than doubled their requirement or promise to me. And it worked remarkably well. We are, like I said, eight years in. We've got about a two-year break because there wasn't a lot of hiring going on in the last year and a half, as you know. Yeah. And we were a bit worried about what that would feel like and look like from a virtual environment standpoint. But for, I guess, six years, we have helped over 35 legal organizations, both law firms and legal departments, hire returning women. We've placed over 95 women. That's wonderful. Year. Yeah. Well, and it's keep in mind, it's a one year fellowship to start and then it's up to the employer. And if they want to give that person a chance to interview and work there longer term. But here's the good news. Eighty seven percent of the women who have, have gone on these fellowships or have done this year long fellowship have gotten offers and returns to their organization. That's wonderful. So it's a huge conversion rate. And, you know, now some of them have made partner at their firms. We have a, a, a woman just this year who made partner at Soul Reeves, who was one of our fellows at the early stages. We have a couple of fellows who are now in the higher echelons, deputy GCs. And so we're really starting to see that not only did we give them an opportunity to come back, but they shined. And so if there was any doubt that returners were a questionable market or a questionable pool of candidates, it's no longer an issue. I would assume that given the current demand for lawyers and the hiring frenzy that's going on, it's increasing the opportunity for this pool of incredibly talented women. So you, you've got a foundation to build on, but I assume you're anticipating even greater success going forward. We are. In fact, we haven't mentioned this publicly yet, so this will be the first time I say it out loud. Not only are we going to re-envision and relaunch OnRamp, kind of in the new Looking at it from a new standpoint, because like you said, there is right now an incredible need for additional talent. And we also need to think about how this works in a remote work or in an in-person hybrid remote work scenario. So we're relaunching OnRamp with a couple of changes to pay attention to those needs in the marketplace. And together with as many organizations who want to work with us as possible, we're going to set a goal for the industry and we're going to bring back 200 women in three years. And so, you know, it took us <laughs> six years to bring 95 women back to the profession. But we think if we all work together uh, from a collective standpoint, we can double that and do that sooner. So the goal will be to bring back 200 women in a couple of years. And so I'm going to come to you guys at SafeArt, Stephen. We're here. 
<laughs> we've been, we've worked with you over the years. We love working with you. I think that's fantastic. Congratulations. I think you're going to blow past the 200 number. I, I hope so. I hope so as well. All right. Uh, we'll, we'll partner and we'll make it 400. <laughs> oh, if only I had the authority to agree to that these days. <laughs> My team likes to call that Karen creep. Anytime anyone says that, you know, gosh, we could go bigger, I double it. <laughs> oh, that's a good way to do it. Then I bet you hit your goals would be my guess. Right. We're running out of time and we haven't even touched on the Women in Law Hackathon, the Move the Needle Fund, the work you do on the Belonging Project. But talk to me a little bit about the Mansfield Certification process that you're so intimately involved in, because I've seen that have tremendous impact on the profession. How did that come to be and sort of how do you assess its role in changing the literally the face of leadership in the profession? Yeah, so it's actually it goes along with one of the other things you mentioned. So, you know, we have a lot of good ideas at Diversity Lab on new and more innovative ways to create more inclusion and equity in the legal profession. But we don't have all the ideas. And our goal with the hackathons was to pull together as many really smart people as possible and have them work with us to solve these challenges and to come up with great ideas. So in 2016, we ran what I think might have been one of the first hackathons in law, at least related to talent. I think Legal Tech was probably doing it, but related to talent. And I, I remember calling Mitch, your counterpart at Oric. And saying to Mitch, you know, Mitch, I want to run a hackathon. It's going to be called, you know, the 2016 Women in Law Hackathon. And we're going to figure out how to get more women in, how to advance them, how to keep them. And he said, this sounds amazing. Can you remind me what a hackathon is? <laughs> that sounds like Mitch. <laughs> <laughs> I tease him to this day. So we ran a hackathon and we asked teams of lawyers to work together and to come up with good ideas and to pitch them in a Shark Tank style mm -hmm. pitch competition. We did so at Stanford Law School. One of the ideas that came from one of the amazing teams was the Mansfield rule. But what's interesting about what they pitched, because we told them when you pitch ideas, it has to be simple. It has to be something that if I was taking an elevator down with the chairman of the firm, I could explain it to her or him and they would be like, well, that sounds remarkable. Tell me more. So your pitch right. has to be the elevator down from the 30th floor to the first. So they said the Mansfield rule. It's more than a man's field. <laughs> And <laughs> all you have to do is interview one woman for every role that you have in leadership. And essentially, it was akin to the Rooney Rule, at least mm -hmm. inspired by, but very similar to the Rooney Rule. The crowd loved it. And they voted it as the crowd favorite. And we made the promise that we would put a capital investment in for any ideas that got crowd favorite and any ideas that were ranked first, second, or third by the judges. Mansfield Rule was one of them. But what was interesting is when the hackathon ended and we started researching, interviewing just one woman, for instance, or considering just one woman for leadership roles, in looking at all the research that had been done on the Rooney Rule, right, we had the benefit of standing on the shoulders of giants and looking at almost every PhD dissertation that had been done to analyze the Rooney Rule. And we learned that one wasn't enough. It wasn't a tipping point. And actually, there's a lot of similar research about women on boards, uh, that there has to be more than one for it to be truly diverse and for it to be an equitable and inclusive uh, environment. So we really did evolve that original idea into more. And so it came out of the gate as considered 30% women and racial minorities for high level hiring and leadership positions. And now that we're in our fourth year, 
every year we have added something to push the profession to do more and better as it relates to inclusion and equity. We added lawyers with disabilities and LGBTQ+, because as you know, you know, those four groups are underrepresented in law. And we had to do so in phases because it couldn't be so hard so fast that it would collapse under its own weight. Because as you know, a lot of processes had to change in law firms in order for them to right. consider 30%, right? So a perfect example, so many of the law firms we were working with, hiring was decentralized. So the Chicago office might be hiring, but that was separate from what was happening in wherever else. So a lot of processes and mindsets had to change in order Absolutely. for the role to work. And now we're in uh, 5.0. Not only do we look at hiring, advancement into promotion, you know, uh, advancement into equity, but all leadership positions. We've also added a C-suite uh, requirement. We've also added a pitch requirement because we know that access to clients and access to rainmaking and credit are incredibly important. So every year it gets harder and every year it pushes the industry to push themselves harder. So that's where we are. And what impact do you assess this has had on the industry? I've so already said what I think, but <laughs> it won't I bet you have. To know we ran the numbers. We looked at the firms that had consistently been participating in the Mansfield role first year, second year, and third year. It's the only one we had all three years of data, public data for. And we looked at how diverse their leadership was. And it turns out that those firms that participated consecutively all three years and met the requirements were moving at a rapid pace in diversifying their leadership compared to non-Mansfield role firms. And in fact, 30 times faster on diversifying their management committees than non-Mansfield role firms, and in particular with racial and ethnic lawyers. Wow. And one of the things that's been interesting for us is because initially we just said 30% and, you know, we were saying women, racial and ethnic minorities and LGBTQ plus and lawyers with disabilities. And that's 30% when you think about everybody in those categories. And we got a lot of pushback that said, well, you know, you need a percentage for each category of humans so that they get the full attention that they deserve and need. And we didn't feel comfortable doing that right away because it felt like it was too much too fast for firms to try to digest and have their processes change and their mindsets change. And so we kept it as the 30% in terms of the pool of candidates. And part of what we wanted to do was run the data and see, was that benefiting one group more than it was benefiting another group? And people kept saying to us, I think this is going to benefit white women. There's more white women. And so people are going to, you know, stack their 30% with white women. And it turns out it has made everyone have a much more thoughtful approach to every single underrepresented group that we have in law. And in fact, it's had a bigger positive impact on racial diversity than any other diversity so far. That's amazing. The work you guys are doing. We could keep this conversation going forever from my standpoint, but we've gone way over our time. So I've got to bring it to closure. As I said, the work you guys are doing has had such an impact on the profession. Speaking as someone who's been in it for a very long time, thank you for that work and keep it up. You're really driving some important change. Thanks thank so you. much. And, and thank you for, for joining us today. Us. Happy to do it. I look forward to continuing to do so. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.